This morning's scripture reading will be John 12, verses 12 through 19. And of course, the, the Palm Sunday uh, event is, is one that's one of the not large number of stories that's included in all four of the Gospels. And we'll, we'll get it from John this morning, chapter 12, starting at verse 12. Well, the next day, the great crowd that had come out for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. So my uh, middle daughter at three years old has been very keen to be the one to say grace at, at meals lately. And at some point along the way, we encouraged her to pray one night for somebody who wasn't feeling so well. So she prayed that God would help them feel better soon. But I think now she thinks that that always has to be part of the prayer, even if she can't think of anybody to pray that they feel better soon. So oftentimes now at supper, you know, she, will, uh, she will pray and she will add at the end that, uh, that she hopes God feels better soon. And okay, it's an ongoing process to kind of explain that God appreciates her interest in his well-being, but you know, he's, he's actually always doing fine. He, he doesn't need anything from us. And that includes our worship. You know, God doesn't need it. God is not sad or insecure uh, without us telling him how great he is. We don't worship for that reason. We worship, first of all, because it's the only appropriate way to react to the creator of the universe, the giver of life, the all-knowing and all-seeing and all-powerful being who's chosen to love us and made a way to redeem us. We also worship because it transforms us. It reminds us of what's most important. It inspires us to be the people God created us to be. It humbles us as we're encouraged to see ourselves as we truly are, sinful and in need of grace. But then it uplifts us. It assures us of God's forgiveness and his presence in our lives no matter what. And so worship is, of course, a deeply meaningful act. But what makes something an act of worship? And that's what I really want to focus on today and how our motivation makes all the difference. Because almost anything can be an act of worship if we approach it in the right way. But we can also ruin really anything at all with the wrong motivation. So I want to dig into today's scripture reading first from John's gospel because apart from just setting the scene for Easter week, it also is a kind of case study into some different approaches to worship. Because there were three different groups of people present when Jesus entered Jerusalem who were motivated by different things, or at least three that we read about in the text. 
And the first group were these pilgrims. They, they were the visitors from outside of Judea, and they'd come for the, the feast to celebrate the Passover. They'd come to worship at the temple there. And they'd heard that this Jesus was coming. They'd heard stories about him. Maybe some of them had had some experience with him, but largely they were not really very well acquainted with him just by reputation. But they got very excited about this. So they, they went and they got these palm branches and they went out and they met Jesus and they laid their coats along his path and they shouted their praises. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Because enough of them recognized that Jesus was choosing to come to Jerusalem in, in this humble way, riding on this young donkey in order to make a powerful statement that he was enacting what the prophet Zechariah had said. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so these pilgrim worshipers saw what looked like a major event unfolding. Jesus was claiming to be king. And they responded with excitement, with hope for what they thought that might mean for them and for their world. Now, a second group who's present are Jesus' opponents. Many of the most powerful religious leaders and rulers in Jerusalem had been looking for a way to stop Jesus for a while now. They'd tried challenging him with their knowledge to trip him up, but they kept being embarrassed. They'd tried accusing him of all kinds of things, but nothing had really stuck. They hoped to seize Jesus when he arrived in Jerusalem, but this big, excited crowd made that impossible. And so Jesus had suddenly become a greater threat to their power than ever. And they responded to this by hatching a new plot to kill him. And then there's a third group as well, and these are local people. These are folks who had traveled from the near area of Bethany, where Jesus had also just been coming from, because Jesus had stayed there, as he often did, with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Except this time when Jesus arrived, Lazarus had died, and Jesus raised him to life after four days in that tomb. And the people there witnessed this, or they were witnesses to, or they believed people who witnessed it. Some of them had, you know, talked to Lazarus. They knew this story. They were convinced about who Jesus was by what he had done. And so maybe some of them grabbed some palm branches and shouted, but the text tells us that mainly they responded by spreading the word about Jesus, telling others about his miracle working power and what that said about who he must be. So, looking at the typical Palm Sunday scripture from the perspective of worship, and I think you can find some things about worship in each of these groups of people. And if we look at that first group, these, these pilgrims traveling, getting caught up in the excitement about Jesus, they understood and accepted the statement that Jesus was making about coming as king. And so they waved their palms, they praised, they cried out, because they weren't happy with the state of their world. They were motivated to see something new happen to see some big change come about because of Jesus. And I find it's easiest to compare these worshipers to some of the kinds of things we usually associate with worship today. Right? A big crowd, they're moved in that moment, they're responding in praise. You could draw the parallel to uh, just a church service or even to uh, maybe a big rally at a Christian conference or something along these lines. There's a strong emotional component in this group. They're expressing both their need and hopefulness with this contagious passion and the second group are those religious elites who wanted to get rid of Jesus. And we could ask how that could possibly be worship, but in their minds, they're not the villains of this story, right? They're the ones who were entrusted with the understanding and teaching of the Scriptures, 
and getting the people to obey them. And Jesus was messing that up, as far as they could see. I'm sure they convinced themselves that their motivation was to protect these poor people they were charged with leading from these strange teachings. And of course, they were wrong. They misjudged Jesus, and they even used lies and violence as means to their end. I think they were actually more invested in their own power and well in status than the well-being of the people they were supposed to be shepherding. But that doesn't mean they didn't see themselves as worshipers, even as they tried to safeguard the religious status quo. And there are Christians today who worship a lot like this. And by that I mean, I see brothers and sisters in the faith who seem to think that their mission is to dominate political contests or to battle it out with other Christians about who is the most right in this point of doctrine or theology. And along the way, they sometimes jettison the demands of love or the fruit of the Spirit in order to arrive at what they see as victory. And I think they believe they're doing it for God and to help His people, but I fear that it has much more to do with their own comfort and sense of control. And then there is a third group, right? The ones who have the experience of Jesus' resurrection power. They knew Lazarus had died. They saw him alive. They spoke with him. They ate with him afterward. They could not keep this to themselves. So they, when Jesus left town, they did too. And they went down to Jerusalem to convince people that this, mist, uh, this miracle had happened and that Jesus was far more than a man with a following or even a political king. He was the Son of God. He was come to bring eternal life. And their worship on that day was their commitment to spreading the word about him. And so we can also compare that to things that Christians have done and still do. Preaching, sharing personal testimonies, trying to engage people in spiritual conversations, other forms of evangelism that are motivated by that personal experience of Jesus' saving power. But you could even look at it a little more broadly than that and include worship through acts of service, through doing the work of the kingdom based on what is needed in that particular moment. Serving at church or in the community according to God's leading is not really too big a stretch for these folks. So we have Jesus entering Jerusalem. He's going to kick off what I think is the most important series of events in human history, and differently motivated people respond with some possible expressions of worship. But if many or even all of these things that we just talked about could be acts of worship, I think that probably raises the question of what does worship even mean? And that's the problem with worship as a term, right? I've, if I put, you know, some Christians on the spot or I put any one of you on the spot and said, all right, can you tell, tell us all what worship is? I don't know how many people would feel super confident in their answer. Is it going to church? Is it singing praises? Is it acting a certain way? Is it a state of mind? I've never come across one definition of worship that seemed like it captured everything it needed to capture. But I'm going to use one today because it's got a good angle to it. And it comes from uh, Adele Calhoun's Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, the thing I've been using uh, for some inspiration as we look at some spiritual practices these last few months. And here's the definition of worship found there. It says, worship happens whenever we intentionally cherish God and value Him above all else in life. Worship reveals what is important to us. We'll do that one more time. Worship happens whenever we intentionally cherish God and value Him above all else in life. Worship reveals what is important to us. See, that felt like it had some emphasis worthy of reflection that it's when we choose to cherish 
God and value Him above all else. And our worship is revealing. It reveals what is important. And so for those who believe in Jesus, those who seek to follow Him, those who desire to be true and dedicated worshipers, I mean, how should that help or challenge us? And of course, like all preachers are supposed to, I've got three points of application to go with that. And the first is that the right motivation can turn many things into acts of worship. Now, waving a palm branch is not in and of itself an act of worship. Waving it in acceptance of Jesus as king with a desire to follow him, well, that's a different story. Now, ordering a coffee at a coffee shop each morning, not an act of worship. But you know, someone could go in there each day with the intention of learning who the regular employees are, showing them kindness, being an uplifting and encouraging presence there, bringing a little bit of Jesus into that space every day. And then does not that become an act of worship? It won't be long before it's time to start mowing my lawn again, right? And which I'll do just often enough that my house is not an embarrassment to the neighborhood. Um, but instead of daydreaming or dwelling on what's bothering me most, or you know, as I mow, I could I could choose something else. I could choose to turn my thoughts to God in gratitude for the good things I've experienced that day or that week. I could think about how I might want to do something special for my family in the next little while. Or I could just really prepare myself to be patient for when I walk back in the house to find whatever level of chaos is going on in there. This can be an act of worship. We have not been passing the plates much because of COVID, but the reason that oftentimes the offering is a part of a worship service in many churches is that when we choose to return a portion of what God has given us to be used by His church, that can be an act of worship. Can be, right? Because if it's an act of guilt or obligation or if it's something that's just wildly at odds with our means and doesn't represent our, us very well, then that might not be showing that we value God above all else in life. But it is an opportunity to worship through giving. And we make lots of other choices about how we use our resources that could also be worship or not. Right? Ways of cherishing and valuing God by caring for people that He loves. And whether that's giving to worthy causes or charities, whether it's a spontaneous act of generosity when you come across somebody who has a need, whether it's sometimes it's choosing not to purchase certain things that were created through the exploitation of people or creation. There are lots of things I could bring into this. But I think the point is that if we want to be better worshipers, then we will seek to be more aware of our motivations. Why are we choosing this or that thing? And does that choice demonstrate the that we value God above all else in life? Now, the second point here is simply that the opposite is also true, that the wrong motivation can ruin anything, including the, the otherwise worshipful acts. Right? You can attend a worship service. You can be here today, and you can, you can sing along with the songs, you can listen to the message, you can bow your head in prayer, and you can walk out having never worshipped God. It's easy to do. Because these actions can be performed in an empty way. They can be motivated entirely by what we expect to get out of them rather than choosing to cherish God or value Him above all else. Now, there's lots of different motivations we can bring. Legalistic faith and dead religion come about this way. When you think of a if you think a particular act is worth something simply based on the act itself and not based on what you bring to it, what, you, what your thoughts and what your, where your heart is in doing that act. But religious activities aren't valuable if, they're, if they aren't done with a desire to please God. And Jesus addressed this very thing. He said, these people honor me with their lips, 
but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And as we saw in today's passage, it can get even worse than this. I mean, sure, Jesus' opponents convinced themselves that they were trying to kill Jesus in service of the greater good. But you cannot cherish God and value him above all else if you are telling lies or if you are plotting to harm someone made in the image of God. The wrong motivation can ruin anything, just as the right motivation can turn many things into acts of worship. The third point to raise here is that we also reveal what's important to us by what we don't bother to do. Right? The, the right motivation can turn many things into worship. The wrong motivation can lead to empty religion. But most of us do need to commit to certain habits so that worship opportunities regularly arise in our lives. Right? Otherwise, we just kind of stop being worshipers altogether and our, our faith withers. There's an old story of kind of a friendly debate that went on between a, a couple of people about, you know, the, the value of going to church. And one of, one of the two men said to his friend, look, I don't need to go to a stuffy old church service, right? Because I can worship God as I watch the sunrise, and I can worship God while walking through the forest and admiring creation. I can sit and close my eyes and ponder the majesty and, and wonder of God. I can talk to God anytime and any place at all. And his friend says, yes, you can do all those things, but you don't, so maybe you should come to church with me this week. <laughs> See, I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with the word religion because there is a lot of lifeless and even toxic religion in our world. Jesus freed us from the need to depend on the trappings of religion to receive new life through him and to be made right with God. But Another meaning for, for religion is simply, you know, when we talk, when you say the word, I do that religiously, it just means you know, it's consistency, it's about pattern, it's about, you know, making it part of life. And everyone I know who wants to be a faithful disciple of Jesus needs structure and patterns and habits that encourage and facilitate worship. Our hectic world will bleed us dry of time and energy if we don't choose to set something aside regularly to try and engage in worship. So give that definition one last time here, that worship happens whenever we intentionally cherish God and value Him above all else in life. Worship reveals what is important to us. So when worship just doesn't happen in our lives, well, we show that we, we don't cherish God or value Him, at least in this season or state of mind that we're in. It reveals that other things must be more important to us, and so our claim of faith it's rather in doubt at that moment. I don't think being a good worshiper is about simply doing more religious stuff, but we can't simply be doing nothing either. And I think that third group of worshipers, the ones who saw Jesus' resurrection power come into this, they, they couldn't do nothing. There was no way they could just sit around and marvel and say, wow, wasn't that amazing? That guy raised people from the dead, and now he went off to do who knows what. I guess we'll just go back to our lives now. They believed fully and completely that Jesus was God's anointed, that he was the Messiah, and so they left home. They told whoever would listen. They risked rejection and embarrassment and the possibility of being let down. It's worth it to people that have faith that Jesus is the real deal. So to return to where we started for a moment, I think we should worship God for those two reasons. First, because he's worthy. And we're entering the week that tells us loud and clear why that is. 
And second, because worship transforms the worshiper. On Palm Sunday, welcoming Jesus caused pilgrim worshipers to open themselves up to the possibility of a new king who would promise them entry into an eternal, eternal kingdom. They made simple palm branches. They used their own cloaks, and they made these basic tools to show their humility and their reverence for God's anointed for the Messiah. Meanwhile, people who were very proud of their knowledge and secure in their status plotted violence. They participated in the religious rituals of Passover with murder on their minds. The wrong motivations can ruin anything. But they failed because Jesus' power, because his resurrection power was greater, greater than the torture and physical death they inflicted on Jesus, and greater than the spiritual agony of taking on the sins of the world. And the people who believed in that power Having seen it when Jesus raised Lazarus, they devoted themselves to the task of telling others about him. Worship happens when we intentionally cherish God and value him above all else in life. And so we might just finish off by asking how much worshiping that we have done lately, like real worshiping, because that's the test we should put ourselves to today, secure in the love of our gracious God and our desiring to love him back as best we can? Are we missing opportunities to worship in everyday life? What could we do that would be an act of worship if we just approached it with the right motivation? Or are we failing to worship even when the opportunity is handed to us? Because anyone can just start going through the motions of their journey of faith. So it matters if we come to church yearning for God or if we're just passing the time until lunch. You know, is, is prayer in our everyday lives, just those couple of moments set when we need to throw a request or a need at God. These kinds of wrong motivations can ruin a lot of things. And how about anyone who's just kind of turned off, right? Life gets crazy. Too many demands get put on us. Not enough of ourselves to respond to it all. Many people will attest that the pandemic has worsened this. But we can't let worship go. You need more of God in these days and not less. So reclaim some worship time. We have a king in Jesus who invites us to delight in his presence. Worshiping him fulfills a deep longing, and it can fill you with gratitude and a growing sense of faith, hope, and love. And so let me just pray now that we would all find ways, or better motivated ways, to worship. Lord Jesus, you are are worthy of all praise. We walk into this week recognizing that that you held nothing back, that you offered all of, of yourself and endured whatever you needed to endure out of love for us. There was no other way. No one else could have done this, but you have offered us freedom from our sins, salvation through the cross, hope for eternal life through that empty tomb. And so, for those who would desire to worship, Lord God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would show us whether there are things that are already in our lives that could be turned to worship if we brought the attention and the, the, the motivation to it. Show us also if there are things in our lives that we do because we think they're worship, but we don't bring ourselves into them, or that we have become complacent in how we carry those out. And help us to to give ourselves to those times that are intended for worship so that we are truly worshiping. And Lord God, if we have 
drifted or wandered, if we found ourselves in a place where we hardly worship, well, then graciously invite us back. Show us the, the, ways, the way back into being worshipers who will be able to experience your presence and receive all the blessings that comes through that. May we be worshipers who worship you, Lord God, in spirit and in truth, not because you need our praises, but because we need to worship you, to be fulfilled as the people you've created us to be. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.